Hey everybody, welcome to E-Commerce Answers, a podcast produced and sponsored by Acorin, a leading e-commerce agency. My name is Frank Thompson. Every episode we're going to explore, analyze, and discuss key issues facing both B2B and B2C e-commerce merchants. We're going to look at a wide range of topics with a bias towards trends and technologies that merchants, e-commerce team members, and the media will be interested in. Welcome. How many clients did we uh, end up working with in, in 2021? Do we, do we do you know a specific number or just um, casually thinking off the cuff? Because uh, when we think about, <clears throat> we've, we've worked with a lot of different clients over the years. And last year we continued to work with a wide range. So we've seen a lot of uh, different needs in the e-commerce space. Are we? Get, I think we we're, we're closing in on 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 thirty. If you in, include um, the some of the clients we inherited at the end of the year, is that about right? Yep. Yeah, I think somewhere in that range. Um, <clears throat> and thinking about the the changing landscape of e-commerce, um, all of our clients are are addressing different. Uh, different e-commerce and, and business objectives. Um, I wanted to chat about um, what we thought we saw changing in 2021, either with regard to what are some of the most popular uh, functionalities that that uh, merchants are adding to their e-commerce sites? What are some of their biggest concerns that they've addressed? Anything um, new and noteworthy that was different in 2021 versus the previous years. Seems like uh, just listening in on all of our operations calls, it was a, there was a lot of uh, focus on performance and then um, additional applications, features, plugins that helped clients uh, address very specific needs, kind of a combination of those things. What did, what did you see? Does anything uh, come to mind or jump out at you? The types of projects we work on for different customers is pretty broad. And it's going to really reflect on the focus of the company. Are they pure play e-commerce or is or are they omni-channel? Number one. Number two, where are they in their e-commerce maturity and e-commerce complexity? So when we look at the pure play e-commerce customers, they're very focused on brand awareness, driving traffic, and then the activities around converting that traffic to customers and all the metrics that they need to do attribution across channels and uh, instrumentize their businesses. When we're looking at customers that have both online as well as offline presence, a lot of their focus has has been on providing a more seamless experience for customers in that omni-channel environment and making sure that customers have a unique experience in, in both types of purchasing environments. Especially towards the end of last year, as COVID was retreating, there has been more focus on in-store traffic and in-store purchases being available online and being able to reconcile the different channels. 
then so, so for yeah. that can you give some examples uh, maybe uh, talking about the form or the pure plays versus versus the omni channels and maybe you were getting to that yeah so for pure plays there, there there's a lot of focus on engaging customers once once they come to the store either new customers how do we get them to um, spend time on site which is very very often driven by driven by content and imagery and and, and the story on the site for customers that have made a purchase or subscribed to, to a mailing list, how do you engage them and drive and bring them back to the site? So a lot of focus on, on that, which also leads to, depending on the type of business, if they're subscription centric, it's how do you have uh, a real focus on, on driving subscription renewals, making sure customers are getting value from, from your product and referring your product out. So big focus on subscription-based user experiences is, is one example for direct B2C. When we're looking at omni-channel, it's allowing customers to buy online and pick up in store and also pay in store with gift cards. Gift cards have, we found historically been a, been a pain point between being able to buy it online and use it in store. So not a big problem to have a gift card available for purchase online and use online. But once you start going in store as well, especially if, if the customers have um, a larger uh, store footprint, multiple locations, that becomes a challenge. Also a challenge of buy online, pick up in store, being able to um, support that sort of functionality. And that's actually very true for customers that have seasonal products. So we have some gourmet food customers. When they're doing, say, Thanksgiving promotions in their stores, being able to buy products online called a, a, a turkey orders or pie orders online, but pick up in store, being able to reconcile. And when somebody shows up in the store, how do you identify the order so that you can fulfill it? Interesting. So. Um... So thinking about the, um, the, the, the pure plays, it sounds like um, they're taking more of an almost, uh, they, it sounds like they have to take more of a science, almost a scientific approach, looking at every step in the online ordering process from the first exposure all the way through conversion to figure out how they can squeeze percentage points uh, out of uh, out of that experience because every percentage point counts when you're pure play. Um, by the same token, with the omnichannel customers, they are in a way um, looking to e expand the um, <clears throat> the the possibilities, the different experiences that consumers can utilize to to purchase and uh, a lot more maybe pandemic driven combining off offline and online whether it be um buy online pick up in store or pick up curbside etc all that kind of stuff and and is that right do, do we think that's going to continue i think it is going to continue there has been an uptick in customer acquisition costs and because of that uptick in customer acquisition costs merchants are looking to really focus on the user experience to make sure that when somebody does come to the site, helping them to convert and buy. 
or if they have already become customers, really focusing on, on that optimization of their experience and getting them to buy more, more often. So um, this, this doesn't sound particularly sexy if you're thinking about an e-commerce merchant. Uh, obviously, a big, bold, beautiful merchandising experience is key, the sexy part. But seems like looking forward, the, the winners are really going to be able to use the data that they have to, to identify um, these methods you're talking about to, to, to grow their businesses. Because it's only going to get more competitive and the cost of acquisition is going to keep inching up, it seems like. Yeah, I think so. And it, it talks to the second point of e-commerce maturity. Launching a beautiful site takes a lot of effort, but it's really only the start of an e-commerce business. It's sort of like launching a beautiful storefront takes a lot of effort. You have to focus on the design and the aesthetics and the flow and the branding and the messaging. But that beautiful e-commerce storefront, whether it's on a Magento, Shopify, or Big Commerce, takes a lot of diligence and understand the requirements making sure those requirements are met by the design and then doing the build out, that, that gets you in the game. Once you're in the game, it's how do you optimize your e-commerce storefront? How do you optimize your omni-channel uh, business? So right. th there really is a lot of, um, get of learning that has to take place because each business is going to be different. What works with one customer group may not work with another. But our customers that have the best metrics, the best data on uh, site usage and site con uh, conversion rates by different segments and design devices and promotions are the ones that are able to continue to improve on their, on their conversion rates and uh, grow their business. And it feels like um, a lot more of the merchants out there, even smaller merchants that are committed e-commerce merchants uh, are now compared to say five years ago, uh, they, they, they understand that it is a significant uh, investment in time to do e-commerce the right way. Um, there's an understanding that, you know, maybe analogous to constructing a, a retail store in a um, highly trafficked uh, uh, retail shopping area in the real world is, is not an inexpensive endeavor and it's complex. Feels like now people are understanding that's, that's the case online too. So true. And the field of dreams analogy, the movie, if you build it, they will come. I think everybody realizes just because you build it, they're not necessarily going to come unless you promote it. And once they come, it doesn't mean that they're going to play baseball. You have to give them a reason to play baseball. Right. So there's, there's a lot that goes into it. So uh, looking forward, thinking about the challenges that um, our clients and e-commerce merchants on both sides, both the, the pure plays and the omni-channel focused businesses are, are, are going to be encountering in 2022. Uh, this year, what are they and um, how are they gonna 
how are they going to keep growing? Is it, um, is it more the same or um, anything else stand out that they'll have to uh, think about, whether it be in the uh, competitive space or uh, inflation impacting pricing or any thoughts on that? I think the macroeconomic trends and are going to continue to have an impact on e-commerce businesses like they have on every other, every other business. Inflation is certainly going to be a concern, especially making sure that they are maintaining margins, making sure that they are controlling their costs. And if they are getting cost increases, pushing them onto, onto their end customers is, is likely something that we will see. We're seeing less of an issue on the supply chain issues and supply chain backlogs and problems. This seems to have eased up a little bit over the last month or two after Christmas, though it doesn't seem like we're out of the woods based on what, what we've heard from customers. So those are those are two big, uh, big macro issues that are impacting pretty much everybody. There's also a lot of talent issues that we're seeing out there, a lot of Open tight, tight labor market. Yeah, director of e-commerce, director of digital marketing, uh, analytics experts, technology experts. We're seeing our customers are having trouble hiring to fill pretty key roles, which means a lot of the e-commerce teams we work with have a lot on their plates. Yeah. We'll see if that changes. I'm not sure. Just looking at uh, employment rates and the number of job postings out there, if it's going to change much at all in the near, near term. Um, any comments on security and performance coming up next year? Is, it, uh, that's, is, it, is that sort of a de facto concern for all e-commerce merchants, no matter what size of business and category of business you're in now? Is, is everybody get that those two things are very important, performance and security? Absolutely, they're table stakes. It's, it's table stakes that you have to have a secure environment. You have to work on secure platforms and you have to focus on the end user experience. And a lot of the platforms that are starting to make those sorts of things easier to do there's still a responsibility on the, on the merchant. And especially in the SaaS platforms, the security becomes less of a concern because they are uh, managed. Security for some of the installed platforms, whether it's a WooCommerce or an Adobe Commerce or, or one, of, one of the others that you have to maintain more of your infrastructure. Those are, those, those are ongoing areas of focus that customers have to be aware of. So let's turn to um, technology trends. Uh, a lot of our uh, listeners, our customers are constantly buffeted by marketing from the platforms, third-party technology apps, plugins, uh, social experience companies, all kinds of uh, agencies. What technology trends did we see picking up steam in 2021 that might accelerate and grow even more in the near term, any thoughts there? There have been some 
um, very marketing-driven trends around PWAs and headless deployments. And for select customers, they are great options. And we've, we've done a number of deployments on headless environments uh, for e-commerce, but they're definitely not the right solution for everybody. There's too much that has to go into a successful PWA deployment to make it a, a good solution for a small non-technical uh, e-commerce merchant. Uh, for them, there are other parts that we feel would be better areas for them to focus on to, to grow. So that, that's one area, PWA. Another, another area that we've seen is some of the, the complete user experience options. So a product we've seen quite a lot of recently and we've been implementing is Happy Returns to support a more seamless return process. We've also seen tools like Globally to support global retailing. And both of those are uh, really pushing the envelope outside of a core e-commerce experience of just buying products online and having them shipped. It's looking at a more extended experience and more extended customer bases. Those are two trends. So uh, you mentioned yesterday when we were talking about the podcast that headless may be a solution looking for a problem. Can you explain that thought a little bit more? Uh, you might, seems like you might be onto something as we execute some, some headless implementations in our agency, but, but mm -hmm. as we talk with prospective customers that are, are thinking about them, it seems like uh, there's, there's a bit of misunderstanding out there. Um, so you, and you had just mentioned that it's not right for everybody. So um, maybe you could um, explain your, your, your opinion about it by um, describing um, when you think it might be a solution for a merchant to look into. What are the characteristics of a company that um, their, their operation, their websites, their business, their content, when it might be something to consider? So PWA or headless solutions essentially break the application uh, into different components. So you might have your e-commerce engine on the back end and your content engine on the back end. And then you have a front end head, which pulls data in from multiple different sources and then uses that data to streamline the customer's experience. So in order to do that, let's take an example of a headless Magento. We recently worked with a, and continue to work with a large uh, software and services and hardware company where they have craft CMS as the front end of their user experience. Right, and in this in this client also requires that their customers go through a configuration process, right? Based on whether they're a very small business or a, a large chain. 
correct? Correct. And, and they have a custom configuration engine that they've built. So it Headless makes a, a really good use case for them or is a, is a good, good solution for them because they have Magento or Adobe Commerce as their backend product catalog and order processing engine. And they use it to have product details for upsells and, and so forth. They have their own custom configuration engine using Magento SKUs. And then they have a separate ordering process that they have built to support some of their, their other product lines. So the, the head, the Craft CMS head, essentially is orchestrating a transaction with when customers come to the site and pulling product data to show in Craft CMS. They're pulling the product data from Magento with all pricing and, and promotional rules being displayed. If the customer wants to go into the purchase process and configure their end product, that config, the configuration engine is driving the business rules around it. And then finally, when they go into checkout, uh, some of the cart and some of the promotions are being served up from Magento, but the authorization and taxes of the payment are being done through a custom gateway. Perfect example for a headless deployment. But thinking about that um, from sort of a, a backend and management perspective, there are more systems in an architecture like that to manage, correct? Absolutely more systems. And because they are a technology-centric organization, they have a team with solution architects and engineers and QA and DevOps that work with our team of Magento solution architects and engineers and QA and DevOps to make sure that they've got a solution that uh, has high reliability, high functionality, but also no one single point of functionality. So tra traditional e-commerce where you've got the full front end and the full back end all say on Shopify or BigCommerce or Adobe Commerce, you've got one full stack they've decomposed that stack and you have to be able to monitor and support and manage each of the different components. But th thinking that way seems pretty progressive in that it, it puts the technology stack, as you mentioned, really in the forefront, in the, in the core of their, their whole operation. I mean, they obviously they are a big company, a big startup, lots of funding. They have um, a huge service organization, but, but they really, thought about the technology as the, the core of how it's going to do business, just given the different markets that they're serving and the different experiences that they're serving. Is that correct? That is correct. So I'm um, going to step a little bit further in here and ask, do you think, um, do you think we'll see, you know, we began the podcast talking about trends, the difference in trends for pure play commerce merchants versus omni-channel, those with uh, existing retail and or other types of operations and channels, sales channels. Is Headless a better fit for a newer, more recently formed organization that can really put technology at its core 
versus a retail operation. And we have a, a couple in our client bases, including a couple new clients that have retail as well, or at least retail outlets that they sell to. Um, is, is there an application for these headless architectures for the omni-channel world as well? Yes, there is. And I, I think the categorization isn't so much if they're a new company or an established company or uh, a bit lesser is it are they tech centric or brand and merchandising centric. It's maybe more of, do they have unique business cases where a PWA architecture and the value of a PWA architecture outweighs the additional cost and complexity where we are today, right? So it's still pretty pretty early in the adoption of PWA and headless architectures. Yeah. Will we be in the same spot in two years time? Probably not. It'll probably be a lot easier for a startup to use a PWA architecture, even if they're not technology centric. But where we are today, you really do have to have uh, a use case to support it and an organization that understands the value of it and is, is interested in embracing it. I, I guess it's the, it's the traditional answer, Frank, it depends. Yeah. And, and really that's why we do requirements gathering and discovery, right, in, in all of our projects. So that we're not recommending a technology just because it's a partner organization. We're recommending the right technology based on customers' requirements and their strategic growth plan. Right, that makes sense. And even a, a, an old retail operation that's adopting uh, deeper e-commerce experiences as a part of its offering may may move into headless architectures if the if the requirements pointed that way. And uh, there are a number of reasons why they might go that way, but um, it's uh, it's there now. There's the, the 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 flexibility to have these architectures that can serve a really wide ranging and diverse set of customer experiences. It's kind of a green field. We look forward to seeing the changes in um, in headless architectures, the progression of of headless architectures in 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 2022 for sure. Um, Couple final questions. I know I certainly wrote more proposals last year with uh, Section 508 uh, handicapped accessibility compliance. Um, table stakes now, really just a requirement, or does it depend on the merchant? I think accessibility and WCAG compliance is something that is getting more prominence within our customer base uh, from an important standpoint. It's also within our own extended organization of Akaran and Wasserman, uh, because diversity and inclusion are such important attributes of the, of the organizations, we see WCAG compliance as a form of inclusivity and a form of making sure that the web is accessible to users of different different abilities and with that in mind we we see it as a really important part of our design process because you can't look at accessibility just as a technology 
approach. It has to start with design. And then it is also part of our development processes and QA processes and validation processes with some of our partners. So it is table stakes, but it's also right, the right thing to do. And yeah. it's an important part of, of how we do our development cycles and making sure that our engineers and QA and designers understand what it means to design and build accessible solutions. There's still a long way for all of us to learn and the guidelines yeah. are. Right, um, it feels um, a lot like um, you know, 2012, 2013 in mobile, mobile sites where you, know, you didn't have to have it, but it, there was an advantage if you, if you did have a responsive front end. Um, now, um, you know, obviously years later, um, we're, we're, all, we're all used to designing and, and, and adopting to mobile experiences as a core part of what we design and build. And um, there may be other things that come along in the near future that are, that are like that as well. Certainly uh, WCAG and handicapped accessibility, very, very important um, to have on the agenda if you're thinking about a new e-commerce site. So finally, uh, what's, the, what's the most important piece of advice you would give to a merchant thinking about starting a new e-commerce business in 2022? Whether they're a startup or whether they're an existing corporation that has an online business idea they want to implement, any thoughts on what, what, what your most important piece of advice would be looking ahead to next year? starting an e-commerce business like starting any other business is based on identifying a market opportunity that you can fill so there needs to be some sort of unique opportunity that your product or your service is going to fulfill because frankly if you go on to a lot of the the marketing channels today in say clothing there are 50 million hoodies and about 3,000 pairs of shorts that are revolutionary and the best ever with five-star reviews. The implication of that is the cost of acquisition is really high because coming into spring, how much are you going to be able to charge, your, charge for your shorts and what's your acquisition cost going to be on those shorts? So if you don't have a unique product, a really unique product and you don't have the uh, market fit, I think it's gonna be difficult to grow that business. Yeah. Or it's gonna take a significant amount of marketing dollars. Exactly, significant marketing dollars. And um, there are still companies that are launching with huge marketing budgets, um, but you, you really need to focus on what's your strategy and how you're going to differentiate. Awesome. This was a, um, a great chat about the end of 2021 and uh, 2022. Now that we're um, getting into it, a lot of interesting stuff as always coming our way with a new year and uh, appreciate your time. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of e-commerce answers. If you have ideas for topics you believe we should be exploring, send a note to podcast at acorin.com. 
or you can fill out the contact form on our website. If you'd like to participate and be a guest, we welcome those inquiries too. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to bringing you our next episode.